to the extent that is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at ababusinesslaw.americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection. This is Rick Paskett, and I am the content guy for the ABA's business law section and welcome you to our section's podcast platform to the extent that. And today's podcast is entitled Activist Rights Plans Use With Care. Our host today is Frank Placenti. Frank is a partner and leader of the U.S. Corporate's Governance Practice of Squire Patton Bods. He is currently the chair of the Business Law Section's Corporate Governance Committee, and he is the editor of the BLS book, Director's Handbook, a field guide to 101 situations commonly encountered in the boardroom. In addition, Frank was the founding president of the American College of Governance Council. So Frank, I will let you introduce our guest today. Thank you very much, Rick. Um, You know, let me begin by saying on September 26th of this year, Vice Chancellor Kathleen McCormick of the Delaware Court of Chancellery permanently enjoined a shareholder rights plan or so-called poison pill that the Williams Company adopted at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. In an 89-page post-trial opinion, uh, Chancellor McCormick, Vice Chancellor McCormick, reviewed the rights plan under the Unical standard and determined the board had breached its fiduciary duty in adopting it, uh, rendering it unenforceable. The rights plan include two key features on which uh, the Vice Chancellor focused. First, a 5% trigger versus the 10 or 20, 15% triggers that we commonly see in rights plans, and a very act, expansive acting in concert provision which the board would have been able to use to aggregate the conduct of various shareholders in order to trigger that threshold. Here today uh, to discuss the Williams case and its implications for so-called activist rights plans is Gregory Varello of Bernstein, Litowitz, Berger, Grossman, uh, LLP, who served as lead counsel uh, in the Williams case for the plaintiffs. Greg heads uh, that firm's Delaware office, where he focuses his practice on protecting investor rights, trying cases in Delaware and around the U.S. Uh, Prior to joining uh, Bernstein, Greg spent a 36-year distinguished career with an elite corporate defense firm, Richards, Leighton & Finger, which was capped by his three-year term as its president. Uh, During that uh, portion of his career, Greg represented top U.S. and global corporations in a variety of Delaware business matters, and litigated hundreds of complex disputes. Greg is now working on the plaintiff side of the bar, but he has a unique vision for both uh, sides of the story uh, as a result of uh, his career uh, spanning now over 37 years. Uh, so Greg, uh, tell us about the Williams case. Why, um, why is it a case that's different or new or what, what's special about it? Well, Frank, thank you so much for the kind, uh, kind introduction. Um, Williams is a really interesting case for a number of reasons. First of all, it's the second case ever tried in Delaware uh, involving a 5% rights trigger. Uh, the first actually had a 4.99% trigger. It was an NOL pill 
and that case had to do with the ability to use such a low trigger for an NOL pill. The Williams pill, however, had nothing to do with NOLs. Um, it was adopted in March of uh, 2020 as the market was uh, was in free fall and the energy market in particular was in free fall. And it was announced in the press release uh, announcing uh, the pill by the company as intended to reduce the likelihood that any person or group gains control of Williams through open market accumulation or other tactics, especially in recent volatile markets. As it turns out, the pill had very little to do with uh, traditional pills and instead was designed and implemented for one reason and one reason uh, alone. Uh, and that reason was to shut down all activism uh, around the Williams Company securities for a year, for the one year uh, term of the rights plan. So this was a novel use of a pill. Uh, as I mentioned, it was only the second pill tried in Delaware with a 5% or lower trigger. Uh, and unlike other uh, pills that had been litigated in the court, it had an extremely broad aggregation provision, often referred to as a Wolfpack provision, and a provision um, that was referred to in the litigation as a daisy chain provision, which effectively held that anyone acting in concert was acting in concert with anyone their counterparty was acting in concert with and so forth. Uh, so it was uh, uh, what the what the court, the trial court described as an extremely aggressive um, and powerful a series of provisions put together. And uh, it was uh, was utilized for uh, a heretofore unheard of purpose. The, the original purpose, Greg, for rights plans was uh, to deal with so-called two-tier coercive takeovers. Um, this was the so-called activist plan. So I take it there was no takeover in sight at the time this one was adopted? That's true. The, the evidence at trial uh, demonstrated conclusively, and, and this wasn't really a dispute at all, that there, neither, there was not only no takeover in sight, but no rumors of a takeover, no threat of a takeover, no activists at the door, uh, and no uh, takeover artists at the door. So I think the court described the, the threat, that the, the three-pronged threat that the Williams board uh, was referring to as purely hypothetical, and that its concerns were, quote, untethered to any concrete event. Um, what does that say about the level of threat that a board has to perceive uh, before it's safe adopting a poison pill? Well, you know, um, this case upheld the principle that before you adopt a poison pill, you have to satisfy the so-called unical proportionality standard. That is to say, you have to reasonably identify a threat to corporate policy and effectiveness, and you have to act in a way that is proportional to that threat. And on the first prong, which is really what your question frames, um, I don't think there's been a clear answer to the level of threat you have to identify, but this case this case proves the point that you have to be able to identify some threat. You have to be able to articulate that there's something that you're using this pill in response to. And the proportionality prong, the second prong of the analysis really captures the level of that threat. Very low threat, very mild response. Serious threat, more serious response is the way that paradigm of the law is set up right now. 
So for, for a practitioner who's advising a board in the midst of the, the situation in which Williams found itself, and many of us had clients who felt that their stock prices were about to become or had already become artificially depressed, and that activism was a real concern, uh, I assume then that the appropriate uh, reaction to that is to prepare a shelf pill and be ready should the theoretical hypothetical risk uh, come about, but not to actually adopt the pill. Well, that is one possible response, Frank. Um, it, it's it's very interesting when you read the court's very careful and well-reasoned opinion that Her Honor did not categorically rule that any of the theoretical justifications offered by the company were illegal or wrong. Um, she allowed that there could be a situation where activism might support the adoption of a, of a rights plan. What she held, as you correctly pointed out a few moments ago, is that the, talk about, <clears throat> excuse me, talk about activism theoretically untethered to any facts or any real world events was simply not going to be enough to justify the adoption of the most, um, it was described by its proponents as a nuclear pill. Uh, and she used that, that analogy in her opinion, talked about it as a nuclear weapon of corporate governance. Um, put simply, you can't use a nuclear device to, to, to deal with a, a non-threat or a very mild threat. And here there was only a theoretical threat. There was nothing uh, specific in, in mind. I want to also challenge uh, the idea that it's okay to use a pill in response to activism. Um, as I said, the court didn't categorically, categorically prohibit it. Uh, but I would think that if you're a director of a public company, activism is part and parcel of what you deal with every day. Uh, I'll give you a simple example. Um, this board agreed at trial in open court testimony uh, that the pill precluded, among other things, ESG engagement with the board. And if you think if you're a public company director and you think it's okay to preclude dialogue with your largest stockholders around ESG, um, I would suggest that maybe you should be a private company director, not a public company. <laughs> Uh, so do you think there was an interaction in her thinking between the 5% threshold, the very low threshold, and the very expansive definition of, uh, of uh, what she called the daisy chain provision for aggregation? Yeah, I think, I think undoubtedly there, was, uh, th th there were three pieces. It was the 5% uh, threshold, which, as you correctly point out, is very low. Only one other example in, in lower law, uh, at least in the courts, of that being litigated. Um, daisy chain provision linking together people who are aggregated, and then the aggregation provision was extremely broad um, as well. And I think all of those things together certainly impacted the court's decision that this was um, not an appropriate response to a real threat. But the board didn't even get past, I mean, the court assumed a threat for the board, notwithstanding the board's failure to identify a legally cognizable threat. And the threat she assumed for purposes of doing her analysis um, was that this might justify as a gap filling, that, that, that the threat might be the gap in the federal securities regime between aggregation of more than 5% and reporting on a 13D. Speaking of 13D, how did the uh, aggregation language here differ from that in 
13 days. So that's that's a that's I think the key question. That's the key the money question, Frank. As you know, um, pills since the very beginning, since 1983-84, have used the 13D aggregation language, agreement, arrangement, understanding with respect to the voting disposition or acquisition of shares. And I may have that slightly wrong because I'm not a federal securities lawyer, but that's the gist of it. Um, this went way, way beyond the typical 13D language. Uh, this allowed the board to conclude that any two or more people were acting in concert uh, in many circumstances where they didn't know they were acting in concert. If they went to the same meeting together and were conscious of each other's investment in a company, even if they didn't talk about it or reach any agreement, arrangement, or understanding with respect to it, um, that was enough provided the board found uh, one additional factor. And that factor could be things like going to a meeting together or having a conversation together. But you're not required to communicate. That's the really interesting thing. You know, in 13D world, when you're talking about aggregation, um, there is at least the requirement that there be a common, quote, understanding, close quote. And one can imagine that it might be possible to form an understanding without an express handshake or contract or signing something. Um, perhaps that's why it's different than, quote, agreement, close quote, in the 13D language. But there is, there is this idea that you are aware that you're entering into um, some parallel conduct with another party. The pro one of the problems with the Williams pill and the aggregation language in particular was that it was so broad that you didn't have to be aware that you, in fact, were entering into an agreement or arrangement understanding with someone. The board could conclude that uh, in its own so-called business judgment uh, and trigger the pill based upon based upon conduct which didn't require a mutual understanding. So let's say you and I each owned 1% of Williams stock and Rick Paskett, who introduced us this morning, owned 3% of Williams stock. And I talked to you about issues that I felt were problematic at Williams. Uh, I didn't know Rick from Adam, but you talked to Rick. Uh, the three of us aggregating 5% uh, under the Williams pill could have triggered it. That's correct. Um, so the pill, the court did, as I read the opinion, leave open the possibility that a rights plan could be utilized to deal with particular activists. Uh, what do you think the pill, uh, the opinion, still leaves open for boards to do in the area of activism? I think that um, you'd have to watch. You'd have to be very, very careful as a board to use a pill. Uh, with anything like this combination of features in response to activism, but let's let's take this pill off the off the table and talk about a a typical fifteen or even ten percent pill that had the typical aggregation language. Um, you could imagine a scenario, or at least I could imagine a scenario, where a, an activist was at the gate and was threatening to. Uh, buy substantially more shares in support of its activist activities. And in that circumstance, the board might determine either because of the activist history or its dynamics in prior, um, uh, prior engagements with this board or others, um, that there was some threat to the company. Um, obviously, that's going to be extremely context specific. And um, 
I may or may not be arguing against it. But I think it's it's context driven. And I think the court was careful to say um, that that she wasn't going to impose a categorical rule, but instead was going to take cases on facts and circumstances as they were presented. But I I think you could imagine uh, a scenario where an activist perhaps coupling uh, its activity with a rapid accumulation of securities might present a sufficient threat, at least to justify the adoption of a pill in the more traditional sense. So with respect to this daisy chain provision, um, how did it differ, if at all, from the, from what I have thought about and included in a pill from time to time, called a Wolfpack provision? Uh, was this a Wolfpack provision on steroids? Yeah, so a couple of, just to draw the distinction, the aggregation provision is what we typically would call the Wolfpack provision. Daisy chain was a separate provision altogether that said, if you and I are acting in concert and I'm acting with Rick in concert, that the three of us are aggregated together. So it was part of aggregation, but it, it was independent of the Wolfpack, whether you and I are acting in concert, whether we're to be aggregated. And, um, you know, these Wolfpack provisions have evolved since at least, I guess, the, the children's place matter a number of years ago in federal court. Uh, and this was clearly on steroids. Is a, I think it's a fair way to put it. And when you add the daisy chain to it, it becomes literally impossible. You and I, as 1% holders, even if we sign something in blood that says we're going to act together, without a daisy chain provision, that probably doesn't trigger anything. But when you add the daisy chain provision on, short of you cross-examining me about who else I have spoken with, met with, took lunch with or otherwise been in the same room with over the last, you know, X number of years of my life, there's no way you can tell how, who you're going to be aggregated with or what that number is going to be. A number of years ago, I worked on a matter in which um, our good friends at Skadden Arps sued my client as part of a wolf pack. And the facts there were uh, not, they were not, they weren't able to point to any specific communications about this company yet, because they hadn't had discovery, but they were able to point to the fact that this cluster of seven or eight guys had invested in, oh, say 10 community banks that had been subject to activism in prior situations. So uh, it truly was a movable feast in which these folks went from one bank to the next. Um, What do you think about a a board utilizing that kind of evidence uh, as evidence of aggregation? Well, um, Frank, I think I'm going to pass on that question because I want the flexibility to think about it in the context of being a plaintiff's lawyer down the road. I will say I have I have represented activists in the banking space as well. I do know that um, the phenomenon of investors following a lead in that area uh, is not unheard of, um, and I've been. Uh, I've had the opportunity to pose investors who have taken the view that they have um, uh, followers and that whenever they file a 13B, they can be sure that a number of people that they don't know and have never spoken with will follow them because people like their investing style. I could imagine arguments uh, on both sides of that issue. Uh, I could certainly imagine arguments that say in a free country, If Frank Placenti is one of the best known investors in small bank stocks, um, that I, as an investment matter, 
uh, want to follow investors I I like and re- and and respect. And every time Frank files a 13D, I'm going to take a look at that that 13D and that stock and make a judgment about whether I want to invest you know my my fifteen hundred dollars in that stock uh, to uh, to add to my portfolio. Seems to me that's very different than. 10 large professional investors who simply follow each other around. But like I said, I'd like to save that for another day. I think it does point out, Greg, that the, where we began, which is the con- highly contextual nature uh, in which courts want these judgments to be made. Uh, they, they don't want the threats to be hypothetical. They don't want them to be uh, whimsical. Uh, they have to be real. I agree. So two other items I'd like to cover really quickly. Um, one is a, an ISS issue and one is a process issue. Uh, Greg, the court was also critical of the board's process in adopting the pill. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, I, I've been in uh, my share of boardrooms adopting pills and I've represented my share of directors who have adopted pills. And it wasn't a surprise to me to learn that otherwise very credentialed directors um, weren't intimately familiar with the details of the pill. Um, Sadly, I think this particular process was one where uh, some members of the board tried to learn a little bit more about what they were doing um, and perhaps uh, weren't told everything they could have been told about this particular pill and how it, how it was adopted. And I mean, no disrespect to the uh, wonderful advisors who advised the, the board. There, there were top-notch law firms and investment banks involved. Um, but you know, um, there are times when a board, for whatever reason, doesn't know everything. Perhaps an objective observer might believe it should. And getting to the bottom of why that is, is uh, is always interesting in every particular situation. Um, I don't think I, I want to go much deeper into it than that, other than to say that a number of directors simply had never looked at the pill, were unaware that there was an acting in concert provision, were unaware that there was a daisy chain provision, learned those things when they first read the complaint months after the after the pill was adopted. I will also say about the process here, though, that one thing I can say very clearly, the board believed from the time it adopted this rights plan that any passive investor was carved out of the Wolfpack and Daisy Chain provision. Unfortunately, the passive investor exemption that that was included in this pill was broken. Instead of saying or between three subparts, it said and. And so the court found correctly on the evidence that at most three stockholders of the entire Williams Company stockholder population were carved out by this passive exe- uh, investor exemption. When we filed our complaint several months before trial, we pointed out that this was obviously wrong uh, and or broken in some way. The board testified that they understood it was broken, and yet they never took the simple act of changing the word and to or to align this passive exempt this passive investor exempt, exemption with their intention. And I, I don't, I, you know, I've advised a lot of boards, Frank, as a defense lawyer. I don't know what world they were living in where they relied on the passive ex, investor exemption, understood it was broken, 
testified that they meant it to mean something else and then didn't do a darn thing to fix it. And to make matters worse, they brought an expert to trial, a well-known Harvard professor uh, to trial who testified among other things that and really meant or. So <clears throat> uh, I don't know what to say about that other than to say that I, that's one that certainly didn't make any sense to me and, and one the court focused on as well. I remember that part of the case as a, as a fellow who advises boards, but I, one of the things that stood out to me was the need to explain to the board the five or six operative provisions of the pill and how they, how they compare with sort of baseline down the center of the fairway rights plans. And we're, if you're counseling the board to adopt a rights plan, that varies in some fashion from or down the center of the fairway rights plan, you should tell them that, and you su should suggest the reasons why you're advising them to do so. And then the minutes of the meeting should reflect the fact that they adopted this somewhat unusual or different rights plan with full knowledge of the fact that it varied from a traditional plan and with a stated justification for their doing so. And in the absence more. of doing that, you you risk uh, having a court conclude, as happened here, that there was inadequate process. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's excellent uh, counseling advice, Frank. And I would say this, you know, when I was a defense lawyer, um, one of the things I found that clients didn't like very much was being told that they were making legal history. <clears throat> Boards don't want to be the first to do something, to make legal history. This board sailed into making into the question of whether it was going to be making legal history without really understanding that's exactly what it was doing. And for whatever reason, they decided to go forward with this uh, with this rights plan, which um, we now know was uh, was illegal. Greg, would you uh, continue to draw a distinction between this kind of five percent plan and a five percent plan that was intended to protect NOLs? Of course I would, Frank, because I actually litigated and defended uh, the first plan that was designed to protect NOLs. And I will note for the record, Frank, that that plan was actually used. Somebody bought through it and the plan uh, the plan was deployed. It was the first plan since Crown Zellerbach that was actually utilized, used. Um, the large holder was diluted and uh, we had a lovely 30-day trading, uh, trading holiday while the Markets tried to figure out what the heck a rights plan was and why there was so much more stock out there. Uh, but yeah, I, I would continue to draw that. And by the way, I don't think this reads on NOL plans at all. Um, the Williams companies did not have substantial NOLs, and they disclaimed having adopted this in order to protect NOLs. Great. Thank you. Last point I want to close with before thanking our guest is um, a, a point about ISS. Uh, we all, know, those of us practicing the area, know that ISS has a rights plan policy. Uh, it issued um, some temporary guidance because of the pandemic that it was going to relax that policy, but nevertheless recommended that the Williams shareholders vote against the Williams chairman uh, because of the 5% threshold being problematic and that it was not uh, in reaction to an actual threat, real or perceived, but instead um, the same hypothetical threat that uh, the court thought existed. So as we counsel our clients in connection with rights plans, I think it's important 
to have a clear-eyed view of where ISS and Glass-Lewis stand. Their policies are different, and they do some tend to evolve. Uh, and I think uh, it, it behooves all of us to have uh, those uh, most recent versions of their uh, policies in mind as we counsel our clients. With that, uh, I'm going to thank Greg for uh, uh, not only um, uh, appearing today with us, but also conceiving the idea for this podcast. It was Greg who thought this would be a good idea, and I agree with him. Uh, it's a very timely decision uh, and kinds of, and does have a number of very helpful practice pointers for those of us who advise boards. Uh, thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Have a wonderful season. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series, To the Extent That. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org slash bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.